As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we pray now as we come to this which is the very word of God, uh, that you would remove any resistance we have to hearing it, that you would work in us in such a way that by faith in you and by your spirit at work in us, we may do that which you call us to do. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to First Peter in chapter 4. First Peter in chapter 4. I want to read verses 7 through 11. 7 through 11. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God will help me. I want to pick up where I left off some weeks ago, and this was it in First Peter and chapter 4. You might remember that Peter arrested his readers with this statement. The end... Of all things is at hand. When he said at hand, he meant near. You remember when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is near. When he said that, he was saying that because he was the king of the kingdom and he was right among them. And he says, I'm bringing that kingdom to you. It's at hand. It's near to you. And so Peter is saying that the end of all things as we know it, the end of life as we know it, life that's permeated really with sin that 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 is the end of it is at hand it's right close near now this wasn't a prediction by the apostle peter of when jesus would return peter knew better he knew that jesus had said no one knows the day or the hour jesus said i don't even know it only my father in heaven knows it so peter wasn't making a prediction he wasn't saying he's going to come back next week or before i die or any of that in fact as you remember peter was told by jesus how he would die so peter had a good sense that jesus wasn't going to return until after peter himself died but but his point was That the end days, the last days, began at the first coming of Jesus. It was then that the very one who had been spoken of by the law and the prophets came. And it was then that he came to live and to die and to rise and to ascend to save his people from their sins All that's left really is the gathering of, as Jesus put it, his sheep. It will take place throughout as long as he tarries. We don't know how long that will be, but when that is done, when the gathering is over, when all who will come, come, when all he has saved will be saved in their own experience and by faith and all of that, when they come, he's coming. And when he comes, we know the judgment will come. 
this earth be destroyed, then renewed, if you will, into what is called the new heavens and the new earth, the very dwelling place of God with his people. Now what Peter is saying is, that's at hand. What Peter is saying is that always have that in your mind. Always realize that. And then prioritize everything in light of that. It's a wake-up call. He says the effect that this should have on you is that you should be self-controlled and sober-minded. It should change the way you think about everything and how you live and how you act, knowing that the end of all things is at hand. It's near, you see. And there, we have many wake-up calls in our in our lives. You know, for students, uh, every semester there's the wake-up call of the first exam when the professor says there'll be an exam next week and all the students are, you know, become sober-minded, some quite literally, I think. But, but, but when they begin to, 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 oh yes, I need to prioritize my life on the basis of the fact that the exam is next week. Oh yes, I, I, better, I better think through what I'm doing tomorrow differently than I had otherwise thought to do. It may be that you're at the doctor's office and the doctor says, you have cancer. It's a wake-up call. It sobers you up. Well, maybe I'll do things differently. You see. Maybe that your boss comes and says, I'd like to meet with you this afternoon. And you go, well, it's a wake-up call. Maybe I'll do things differently. All kinds of sort of calls that give us self-control and sober us up in our thinking and priorities and Peter's saying this is how we have to think so with that in mind with the fact that the end of all things is near it should focus us in two ways now I don't think Peter's being exhaustive here he's writing a particular letter to these particular people and this is what they need to hear thus it's what we need to hear it could have gone other directions I suppose in some sense with this but but generally speaking these two ways are ways to focus our attention focus our priorities focus our thoughts focus our lives knowing living in light of the fact that the end of all things is near the first focus is upward the second focus is outward the upward focus he says pray he says, if you really think about the fact that the end of all things is near, it should focus your attention and drive you to your knees. You should begin to pray. Pray that God will help you in the midst of this life till he comes to be faithful in the midst of that. To be thinking about all those who now don't know him and to be praying for them and for their salvation. To be praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, that it should focus our attention and cause us to pray. And it should also then inform what we're praying about. What's really important to pray about. Is the new car that important to pray about? Maybe. But when the end of all things is near. What's, what's really. What really should be at the top of that list. You see. As we begin to pray. Knowing that the end of all things is near. To refocus our lives to pray. And refocus our praying. We talked about that a month and a half ago. Today this second focus is outward he says love one another earnestly love one another earnestly that expression earnestly it means focused it means that should be the the very direction of your life it's used in the language of the day in peter's day to describe a runner 
who is stretching himself out to reach the finish line, to reach the tape. You have that picture in your mind of, of a runner running a race, and <clears throat> there's the end of the, the line, and you, you, we just know how they look. I won't demonstrate that because it'll look really funny. But, but you know what that'll look <clears throat> like as they stretch out, and, and you realize that everything in their mind, every desire they have, their goal at the moment is to reach that finish line. They're, they're, they're giving everything to it. He says, I want you to love like that. I want you to extend yourself in such a way. It should be that kind of a priority. That's the importance of loving one another. You're to love one another like that, to really stretch yourself, to really extend yourself. That's your focus. Don't leave anything behind. Go for it. Really love. I have to be honest with you. The deeper I think of this, the more I realize I don't have a category in my brain for that. I know how far short I fall in that. Just thinking about. It shouldn't surprise us. It doesn't surprise us when we read in the scripture that, that, that we're to love. You remember Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Well, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all of the law and the prophets are summed up in that. Which is to say, if there's no love, if you take love out of it, then what was in the law and what the prophets spoke about is meaningless. It, it's, it's that significant in all, of, in all of the scripture. We're to love like, we're to love like that. As Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says, all of the law is fulfilled and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, it's all fulfilled there. You want to fulfill the law? Well, that's it, to love your neighbor as yourself. When he writes to the church in Corinth, he's even more pointed. You know this expression. But in 1 Corinthians in chapter 13, this love chapter as we, as we romantically put it. But when Paul writes of it, it's not romantic at all. It's very serious. And he says this, if... I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy or clanging symbol. In other words, if my speech is without love, then it, it really means it's no meaning. It's incomprehensible. See, that's how important love is. When, when we're engaging with one another, I'm speaking, even that which is true, then if there isn't love in it, then I have no reason really to be speaking it at all. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. That gets right down to our identity. He said, if I even love, you see, no matter what else, I am nothing. And then he says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. No, nothing there's nothing of value here if, if love really isn't in it. We say, oh, my, yes. Well, Peter put it like this of us in First Peter in chapter 1, verse 22. He said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And he says, you've been reborn. You've been given this new life. And yes, this new life to believe, but in believing what 
transpires is a transformation to cause you to love one another. You've been born again to this sincere love. So love one another earnestly. This is who you now are. God is making you, has made you to be a lover. So love. If you don't, you're denying yourself. You're denying who God has made you to be. And so you're to really love, you see. This passage I read earlier out of 1 John in chapter 4 is, is striking. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. You see, God is love within himself. God didn't create us so that he could love. He does love in his creation, and he loves his creation, and he loves us. But he didn't, love, he didn't make us because he didn't have anyone to love. He's loving himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's part of the mystery of the Trinity. He is love. If he was just one person in all eternity, who would he love? But he's one God in three persons. He loves. The Father loves the Son and has from all eternity. The Son loves the Father and has from all eternity. The Son loves the Spirit and has from all eternity. The Spirit loves the Son and has from all eternity. Within God, you see, is this loving community. And he created us to reflect him. So you see, we're denying the image of God in us when we don't love. That's our identity. To be those who love. Because God is love. And we're made in his image, you see. It's that significant. Without love, we're denying our humanness. We're denying the image of God in us. So we're to love, you see. So no surprise in this. And then no surprise when Jesus, in meeting with his disciples the night before his crucifixion, crucifixion, said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. That is, that you've learned from me, that you follow me, that you trust me, that you believe in me, that you're mine. This will be the mark. This is how they'll know. It's because you love each other. And so he says, you love each other as we love each other, people should say, oh, that reminds me of Jesus. The way that they love each other reminds me of Jesus. They must belong to him. And if we're not loving each other, they're not going to be reminded of Jesus. They're not going to be thinking of him at all. And she says, that's the mark upon you. That's how significant it is. So when Peter tells them that in focusing our lives, because we know that the end of all things is near, we should be focused upward to pray, but also outward to love. Now, you know, it's true that we need to be loved. God loves us. He's very upfront about that. He's very upfront about it in Jesus. He gave his son and said, look at that. Anybody doubt my love? He says, and we need to be loved. We, we know the difficulties that people have who haven't been loved, don't understand love. Even human love, that they've not been loved by father, by mother, by brother, by sister, by friend. We know that. We see it. Some of us feel it in our own lives. 
But there's another need that we have concerning love. And we mustn't ever think it second. And that is we have a need to love. You see, we must love. If we don't love, we'll be miserable. When when God is directing our lives by way of his commandments, what does he tell us? He commands us to love. He says, you need to do this. When Jesus was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, again, that, that very dramatic night, what did he talk to them about? He talked to them about many things. Primarily, if you read through John 14, 15, 16, what you, what you find is that he talked to them about loving each other. This commandment I give to you that you love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. His commandments is to love one another. And so we see this in the whole mix of this. And he crescendos this. He ends this by saying, I'm telling you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. He's saying, listen, if we don't love each other, We won't know the joy that Jesus had. He says, if you want to know my joy, Jesus says, you want to know the joy that burns within me. He's the very son of God. That's perfect joy. So you want to know that joy? Well, here's how I have that joy. It's because I love. I love my father. I love you. What does the author of Hebrews say about Jesus? You know this. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Even that. How could he do that? Well, he did it with joy. He wasn't laughing the whole way. He wasn't with a smile on his face. That's not what he means. He means uh, there's this burning sense of satisfaction and contentment, fulfillment. This is what I was made for. Joy, you see. He says, you won't have it if you're selfishly living, if you're living for yourself, if you're not outward focused, if you're not loving. But if you love one another, and he puts this as I've loved you, then you'll know real joy. That's, again, the significance of it. We must love. We need to love. I mean, maybe Ringo had it right. I need somebody to love. Now, I think he meant something different, and I don't want to go there. Well, that's the point, isn't it? We really do need to love. Just as we need to be loved, we mustn't forget that we need to love. We'll die without loving. All right? So that's the significance. So so Peter's not saying anything surprising, but he is saying something that we have to grab hold of, that we must love earnestly. Focus of our attention. When you're prioritizing, because the end may come at any moment, and the end is near, what should you should be about? Praying and loving. Gets a bit simple at that point. Gets complex when you operationalize it but 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 that's the point isn't it now he lays out we'll only get to one of these today but he lays out three expressions of love he could have laid out more but he lays out three expressions of love first of all love covers a multitude of sins 
Secondly, love shows hospitality. Thirdly, love serves with the gifts that God gives. Right? That's his point right here. Focus our attention outward. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love shows hospitality. Love serves with the gifts that God gives. Let's take up this first one today. Love covers a multitude of sins. Sins, we know. Word sin means to miss the mark. There's a standard, you miss it. If you're shooting free throws and you make out of 10, you sin twice. Right? I mean, that's, you, you take an exam and, and you get a, an 88, you sin 12. I mean, it's missing the mark. It's missing the perfection. Now we think about sinning against God. We know what that means. His law, his perfection. We sin against him. We fail to glorify him, reflect him, and all of that. That's real sin. But we can sin against one another as well. Now we have to be careful here. Because when we're talking about sinning against God, there's an objective standard. God is never petty, for instance. Let's face it. We can be petty. God's standards are never unfair. Let's face it, ours can be. So when we're making standards and and people uh, fail to reach them, uh, it hurts us. We might be offended, but we have to really think through, is that really a sin against me? But the truth of the matter is we can indeed sin against each other. That's just really, 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 really true. In a a variety of ways. You you know it because you've been sinned against by others. And you know because you've sinned against others. We can lie to each other. We can be unfaithful to each other. We can engage in sexual immorality and lead one another in that sin. We know that we can defraud each other. We know that we can gossip. We can slander. We can fail to keep our word. There's all kinds of ways. That we sin against each other. And so Peter says that this love that we're called to moves to cover those sins. Now the word cover is a forgiveness word. Uh, The assurance that I read this morning. Blessed is the man who sins are forgiven, whose iniquities are covered by the Lord. Covered, you see. Now we think of covering something. I suppose we can think of it like this: that when you go to a restaurant, you get the you get the you get the bill, and you pay the waiter or the waitress, and you could say that covers it. And what that means is, I don't need to pay you anymore. You can't come after me to get more money because that takes care of it. That covers it. When sins are forgiven, they're covered in that sense. They're paid for. There's nothing else to be paid once they're covered. We understand that in our relationship with God. Our sins are covered because of the blood of Jesus. He pays. We don't. So when we cover the sins of those who've sinned against us, we pay. They don't. That's what it means to forgive. Now we know that forgiveness always costs the forgiver. When we say the forgiveness of God is free, we mean free to us. We mean we don't pay anything. It isn't free to him to grant it. It cost him his son. 
He paid it. The forgiver always pays. Someone comes into your house, they break a lamp, it's worth $100. You cover it. They're great. You're out 100 bucks. You paid, you say. Someone damages your reputation. You forgive. You cover it. They're free. Your reputation is still stained. To cover it means you pay it. To cover it could also mean you change the way you see it. Uh, One of the neighbors in in, in our neighborhood recently painted, he painted his house red. So it's noticeable. Although I've been told it's not really red, but I don't get that. It's red, all right? And and so he painted it red. and, And I was driving by it. And you know what? I couldn't remember the old color. Well, part of that is because I'm old. But part of that is it, it's just red now. And I've gone by it a few times and it looks red to me. And so to cover it means to forget what's underneath. Or at least not to remember it any longer. It, it looks differently to you. You now see it as it now is, not as it once was. Now, my neighbor committed the cardinal sin, no pun intended. Uh, committed the cardinal sin of painters. And he painted the front and the sides first. So he hasn't gotten to the back yet and it's been a year and a half. Uh, But I happened to see the back. So now I remember. And so he didn't really cover it. That's not what forgiveness is. You see, forgiveness isn't being able to see through. It isn't being able to see around. It isn't being able to see what it used to be. It's now looking at it as it now is covered. And so when we're forgiven, this is amazing. Mustn't ever miss this. When we're forgiven our sins, God no longer sees us as we once were. He never sees us once we've been forgiven apart from Christ. We're covered completely in the righteousness of Christ. There isn't anything seeping through that God sees of the old me when he sees me covered in the righteousness of Christ. Again, I've been thinking about this and living in this and preaching about this for decades. And I'm still trying to get around that. I'm still trying to know what that really means in our lives. I, I can't hardly imagine it. That he doesn't see me the way that I see me. That he really sees me in Jesus. And there's none of that old seeping through that he sees. And he says, I'll remember your sins no more. And people often say, you know, when we forgive, it's hard to forget. And and I would say, you know, forgetting, that's a different concept, you see. Forgetting is is rather passive. We expect it to sort of to happen. But but when you forgive, we you don't get a lobotomy in that part of your brain. We we still think. So what does it mean to forgive? It means to not remember that sin. 
to not bring it to mind, to, 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 to not remember. You know, in the, in the Bible, the word, the, 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 the scripture uses that phrase, phrase about God. For instance, that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That doesn't mean he forgot it for all those centuries. It means that now he's going to act upon it. He remembered it. So not to remember means I'm not going to act upon it. I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve. So we aren't to remember that. We're to frame our thinking and our understanding of one another in a sense that says, no, 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 I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to think about them as the old color they are. They've been repainted. And I'm going to think of them now as forgiven. I'm not going to remember them as the, the one who committed that offense against me. I'm going to remember them now as one I love. See, that's what it means. That's what it means to cover our sins. Although this doesn't mean that we will necessarily never confront when someone sins against us. It isn't that we get sinned against and we don't confront. What it means is that when we do confront, that we do it with the desire to cover the sin. That if we need to confront because the relationship has been broken, we, we need to talk this through, uh, then we confront with the deep desire in love for them that this isn't going to hurt them. That I'm going to take the hurt. I'm going to cover that. I'm going to forgive them. That's why I'm going. I want them to know that. But, but I want to make sure that the relationship is reconciled. This isn't easy. It's hard to know when to confront about, what to confront about, what not to confront and all of that. But, but still, when, when we confront, you know, Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go to him. That doesn't mean every single time. There's some things that we just say. But there are times when we need to go. Luke 17 says, your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And, and all of that. But, but the desire is in all those things is not to make them hurt as badly as they've hurt you. Not to take out vengeance against them. Not to make them pay for the sins that they've done. Because that's the opposite of forgiveness. Forgiveness means that I'm going because I want you to know that I took it. I want you to know that you're forgiven. I want you to know that you're covered. I want you to know that you owe me nothing. I, w- I want you to know that it's, that's all done. Nor does it mean to cover these sins. Nor does it mean that, that um, uh, there will be no discipline or, or uh, no reimbursements or any of that. It could well be. There are some relationships that require discipline. You know, if your child sins against you, well, you can forgive and cover and all of that. But, but you also have a parental responsibility for their good to discipline. If you're a boss and someone sins against you, well, there may be some discipline. In the context of church life, someone sins, there may be discipline until they come to repentance for the sake of the body and all of that. But never is it done to get the person to pay. It's always done out of love to restore a relationship and to help and to bless. And it may be good for them to to reimburse if they've stolen or taken or make right. But that's out of their own repentance. Not out of the requirement. You see. But it does mean that there are times when we won't confront. John MacArthur wrote a helpful book, I think, called The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. And he puts it like this. 
He says, in effect, the person who chooses to forgive resolves not to remember the offense, refuses to hold a grudge, relinquishes any claim on recompense, and resists the temptation to brood or retaliate. Just think of how much time we'll save if we forgive. I mean, that accounts for a great deal of our lives right there, just all those things. The offended party simply bears the insult. The offense is set aside for Christ's sake. For petty and unintentional offenses, this is the proper and loving way to forgive without any confrontation and without stirring any strife. He goes on to say this. He says, this, I believe, is what Scripture refers to most often when it calls us to forgive one another. The heavy emphasis on forgiveness in Scripture is not meant to make us more confrontational, but quite the opposite. When Scripture calls us to have an attitude of forgiveness, the emphasis is always on long-suffering, patience, benevolence, forbearance, kindness, and mercy, not confrontation. Confrontation isn't our knee-jerk reaction. It's not our instinct. Our instinct is to cover. And we confront only when we realize this covering isn't working. And so... To restore the relationship, then there needs to be this confrontation. For their good, there needs to be this confrontation. But our instinct isn't confrontation. And this is remarkable. And I don't know John MacArthur personally. I've never met him. Um, We have mutual friends, friends I know that know him and all of that. But what's fascinating about this man is that he confronts publicly all the time when... There's an issue that he thinks is related to the understanding of Scripture. He confronts all the time. But his reputation is, if he's attacked personally, he doesn't confront. He covers it. He bears it in patience. I'm sure he doesn't do it perfectly. But you get the point. That's all admirable. In that sense. Because you see, even if we could confront their times for the sake of our own souls, it's good not to. And again, please hear me. This doesn't mean if you're being abused physically or sexually that you should quietly take it. Those are sins against you, sins against God. The person doing those sins needs to be confronted and dealt with and all of that. And there's a variety of sins like that of people stealing from you and so forth and so on. Understand the heart of this. Understand that we in our own personal growth need to realize that there are all kinds of things that offend us. Some are petty, some are unintentional, some are even significant. But for the sake of our own souls, it could be helpful to bear it. We always have to ask the question, you know, if I don't confront, the pain is mine. If I do confront, they may be put in pain. By this confrontation. Do I really want that? Is that really helpful? Is that really necessary? Since the end of all things is near. Is that really necessary? I mean I may have had to hold on to this. To this pain for 10 years. Or 20 or 30 at my age. Heck who knows. Right? And in light of eternity. Is it that much to bear? For the sake of the relationship. For the sake of the body. Is it that much to bear? Really? One other thing. I'm sorry, I haven't preached in a month and a half. One other thing. 
as a church, we need to cover the sins that God has covered. By that I mean this. In a body, we've all committed sins. Some of us more public than others, perhaps. But we've all committed sins. And there can be, in the context of the life of a church, a self-consciousness, a shame that says, when I'm with that group of people, I don't want them to know this about me. Or I'm afraid they do know this about me, so I don't want to be among that group of people. We need to have the ethos as a church. And I think we do, essentially. We need to have the, the ethos of a church that everyone knows that we cover the sins that God has covered. We don't bring them up. We don't talk about them. Because in our congregation, we have people with criminal records. We have people who've been party to abortions. We have people who have been unfaithful in their marriages. We have people who've lied. We have people who've stolen. We have people um, who uh, have sexual identity issues. We have people in every walk of life and every kind of sin imaginable. And still the struggle with them in our lives. And we have to be able to be among each other and know that our sins are covered. The sins that God has covered won't be raised. The sins, we won't be, we won't be seen like that in the eyes of people. And we can really do this. God can really help us do this. He can really give us the strength and the, the, the spiritual help to do that. I know that if I could just give this personal testimony, you know, where I sit, people come, you come to me throughout the decades we've been together and confess sins to me. And you know, if you do that, you know that I'm a believer in honest and thorough repentance and real forgiveness. And when real forgiveness is received, then it really is done. It really is over. I make no records of any of these things. I write nothing down about every, these things. And what I realize is that over time, when I see you, I never think of you in light of that sin. I just don't. I just realized this the other day. I was thinking about it. I, I just don't. And it's not because I'm special. I mean, I am really. It's not that. It's the work of God. He really does that work in us. He creates in his people this sense. So if you find yourself, when you see people who've sinned against you, or you see people you know their sin of the past, or whatever that is, or even a sin, that, and, 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 and you still see them in it, repent yourself. And ask God to enable you. To cover it so that you'll remember it no more. And so you'll no longer see them in that sin. Love. If you really love, you see, if you don't love, that's the point. If you don't love, you can't do this. If you're not doing this, it means you're really not loving. I mean, that's what you have to repent of. You're really not loving if you can't do that. See, So ask God. Keep working that love in you. And, and we, we can do this by the grace of God. He enables us, you see, because he has forgiven us. You remember, one of my first questions I wrote when I read the passage, Love Covers a Multitude of Sins, I wanted to write, well, how many is a multitude? And I realized, whoops, I've been had. 
Peter, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus said, a multitude. Seventy times seven. The point is seventy times seven. The point of a multitude is, it's a lot. You know, after probably the 300th time, you're just going to do it automatically. Right? I mean, you just get in the habit of it. It becomes part of who you are. Jesus said, let me tell you a story. There's a man. And uh, he owed another man billions. And the man caught up with him and he went into the man and he said, uh, I know I owe you billions. Give me till Monday. I'll pay you. The man said, you're forgiven. So that man had been forgiven billions, went out and found some that owed him a significant amount, not an insignificant amount, but thousands. And he shook him and he said, you have to pay me. And the man said, I can't pay you. And he threw him in jail. And Jesus, I think, probably paused. Think about that. And that's, he said, how God will treat us if we don't forgive our brother from our hearts. And that sounds like a threat, not so much. It's just really the logic of it. How much is God covered? To imagine that the perfect one doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us in his son. We need to see each other in his son. The covering came on that night. Jesus took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. This is my body. My father and I are covering the cost. We're paying it. You don't have to. You can't. You don't have to. It's covered. Same way he took the cup. After giving thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. When we remember the death of Christ, we remember what it costs. We remember that it was paid. We remember that it's covered. We receive that. We give that. parents, to children, to spouses, to friends, to neighbors, we give it. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that we'd hear this word and believe it. I don't want to minimize at all the cost of forgiving the pain of having been hurt by another. The imprint that that makes. But I I pray, Father, that for me and for us, you would cause our instinct, our knee-jerk to be 
covering. Not in the naivete of thinking that, oh, I've covered all as well, but Father, in the spiritual reality of restoration of relationships. So Father, be with us. Make us wise in these matters. Cause us to love in all of these matters. So I pray now that you would take this bread and this juice and you would set it apart for us in such a way that we would know we're in the very presence of Jesus, this very one who gave himself for us that our sins may be covered, paid in full, and that we might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And all who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus, as he's offered to us in the gospel, as the Savior of sinners, the one who pays and covers. And it's your heart's desire to live in that, to walk in that. And as you've been forgiven, to forgive. If all that's true for you, please come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And if you do, just acknowledge the very fact. Your sin is covered. Please come.